You can give it up for these guys one more time. I'm uh, excited to work with this crew. Is 2020 in the house? Anybody from 2020? Hey, okay. Omega in the house? Praxis? <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, man, like Danny said, uh, my name is Austin Payne. Uh, I'm very excited. My family and I, we are officially uh, residents of Northern California as of Thursday. So. If you've ever moved before, you know the nightmare that is moving. Uh, I packed up a 26-foot U-Haul on Thursday, on uh, Thanksgiving. We packed it the day before, and then we took the long haul from San Diego uh, all the way up the freeway in this massive U-Haul van. Thank God for Thanksgiving football. Had the AirPods in. Listening, not watching. Uh, I'm a safe driver, but I never knew how bumpy freeways are, and you'll never know until you drive in one of those massive U-Haul vans. It was like the entire time, it was just like every bone in my body just shaking. So, uh, but we're, we're excited to be up here. My in-laws live in Bodega Bay, uh, not too far from here, and so we're kind of crashing at their place until we move officially in January into beautiful Castro Valley, but we're excited to be here. On Thanksgiving, um, yeah, thank you, thank you. On Thanksgiving... Uh, if you've ever been up Bodega Bay, up uh, the coast up there, there's a golf course there, and um, I was out on a walk. We had finally arrived on Friday, and it was kind of like the letdown after the long drive and the moving and all that, and I'm out on a walk, and there's a golf course, so I have a putter and like a club with me, just messing around, and my three-year-old daughter, Piper, was with me, and we walk out onto the green, the sun's setting. It was like this relaxing moment after the chaos of this week. And I have a couple of golf balls with me. And my daughter, I'm like putting, just kind of messing around. Um, I'm, I'm a, a f kind of a golfer, if you know what I mean. Like I enjoy the sport, but it's maddening. It's, I'm, I'm not very good at it. And so my, my daughter takes one of the golf balls and she walks over to the, ball, to the hole. She places it right next to the hole and then knocks it in. And she looks at me, and I kid you not, three-year-old Piper, she goes, I'm way better than you, Daddy. <laughs> so that is the sass that I'm dealing with. Um, I love my little girl, Piper, and then we have an eight-month-old Phoebe as well that I'm excited for you guys to meet. Um, and my wife, Paige, will both be on staff here starting in January. But we're very excited, and I love this series that we're jumping into. Uh, like Danny said, it was a bit of a surprise uh, for me to, to first teach on hell and then Tamar. So... We're in for a serious sermon here, folks, and if you have, are new to church or relatively new to church, um, this morning is rated like PG-13, low-key R. So 2020 in the room, buckle up, okay? Lauren, you're going to have some work to do after today. But uh, if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead to turn to Genesis chapter 38. We're going to get there in just a minute. Um, but I'm, I love this series because we're tracking the genealogy of Jesus, right? Uh, the family of Jesus, if you will, the lineage. And this has been like growing in traction. Uh, I was looking at a couple of like, you know, those ancestry websites. Maybe some of you have done uh, this before, whether it's like 23andMe or Ancestry.com, Helix. There's, there's a bunch of websites out there where you can, you know, take a DNA sample and then track your family history. And Matthew chapter one kind of starts out with, this lineage of Jesus. And if you've ever done it before, maybe there's a member of your family that gets, uh, you know, you find out that you're somehow related to somebody that you're really proud of. My family did this a couple years back, and my grandma, she very proudly tells us at uh, this family reunion, she goes, you know what, I found out that we're, the pains are distantly related to Isaac Newton. 
I was like, oh, wow, like that's kind of cool. Until you look at the actual family tree and it's like your cousins, cousins, dog owners, sisters, mother-in-law, and you're like, come on, like that, does that really count? But sometimes there's people that you're really proud of. Sometimes with these ancestry things like 23andMe, somebody will pop up in the story that you're not so proud of, right? Maybe Thanksgiving happened this last week and you do the family gathering and you know the moment where maybe that uncle walks in or that cousin, everybody's like, ah, geez, right? Like there's uncomfortable moments when it comes to family. And I love that the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter one, if you were, if I was trying to establish somebody important in history, maybe you would, you would figure out how to take their lineage and tie them to royalty or tie them to important people to say like, hey, here's Jesus, the king of the universe, and let me tell you where he came from, and there'd be this proud lineage. And yet we see in Matthew chapter 1 that Matthew's going to include some scandalous characters in this lineage, and I, I believe wholeheartedly that he did that intentionally. But Matthew chapter 1 looks like this, verses 1 through 17, um, and maybe this is a bad thing to admit as a pastor, but if you're anything like me, has anybody read the book of Matthew before and just skipped over chapter 1? Right? You kind of like, name of son of son of son of like you just skip over 17 verses until you get the birth of Jesus and you're like, ah, Christmas, right? And we read these verses, and if you don't like if you if you're not a, a, a student of the Bible, it's really hard to look at these verses and make anything of it, right? Like you've never seen this on a mug before, or like an inspirational poster when you walk into a Christian school or something. Like it just it's they're not verses that make a whole lot of sense unless you dive into the narrative of Scripture and see what Matthew is up to. And what we have to do first to understand why Matthew includes the people that he does in his lineage is understand who Matthew is. Matthew was a tax collector. And so as the author of the book of Matthew, he's very intentional about how he writes the story of Jesus. And he kicks it off with this lineage and he includes these scandalous people. I wholeheartedly believe because Matthew was kind of a scandalous person. As a tax collector in the first century, he would have been a, a Jewish man, and yet he's collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. And so when he went to Rome, the place of his work, he didn't really belong. He didn't fit in as a member of Rome because he was Jewish. And yet when he went to his Jewish culture, his Jewish community, he didn't fit in there either because what the tax collectors were known for is, one, they're collecting taxes for the Roman Empire, and not much has changed in 2,000 years, right? Nobody really likes paying taxes. They didn't back then. We don't now. And so 2,000 years ago, when the tax collector came around, it was like, ah, here comes Matthew, the tax collector. But not only that, but the tax collectors were known as shady characters. They would collect taxes for Rome, and then they would come and say, hey, taxes increased 5% this year. And then they would pocket that. And so Matthew, when he gets called as a follower of Jesus, there's a little bit of this upside-down kingdom getting established as Jesus calls those that the rest of the world would kind of disqualify. And he says, you, come and follow me. I'm going to use you. I have a purpose for you. And we start to unpack and see why Matthew kicks off his gospel with a genealogy like his is because he's establishing a story and a Jesus that's introducing a kingdom, introducing a, a, a movement that's for the marginalized, that's for the unimportant, the irreligious. And here we're going to see not just five women in this genealogy, but five 
kind of scandalous stories, hence the name of this series. First, we see Tamar, which we're going to unpack her story a little bit more today, but she's not Jewish. Rahab is a Canaanite prostitute. We're going to unpack her story next week. Uh, Ruth, also not Jewish. Bathsheba, who if you're familiar with the Bible at all, David and Bathsheba, that we're going to get to this story in the next couple of weeks, but there's this moment where David steals this woman. Um, he, he sleeps with her. He murders her husband, and we see the, the scandal of the Old Testament. And if you're sitting here uh, and not awake yet in church, you're like, did he just say prostitution and killed her husband in the same sentence? Yes, I did, friends. Welcome to church on a Sunday morning where the next five weeks, if you think the Bible is boring, just come for the next couple of weeks as we unpack some of these kind of wild stories in the Old Testament that Matthew very intentionally includes. But I believe wholeheartedly That Matthew, if he was going to communicate to us today why he included the stories that he did, I believe that if you're sitting here and you've ever felt like an outcast, if you've ever felt alone, like a nobody, maybe there's shame in your story, maybe in your past or maybe in your present, maybe you walked through those doors today or you parked and you walked onto a church campus and you don't really feel like you fit in here, you don't really feel like you belong here. Matthew writes to an audience, not just to tell them that they're invited to come and sit in the corner, but he's writing to a group of people saying, it's not just that you're invited, it's that you belong. And over the next couple of weeks, as we unpack God's heart for his people, my hope is that as you hear the story of God and his lineage, that you would understand your place in that story. And Advent, that word, um, as we kick off this Advent series, uh, the, the Latin root of the word Advent is uh, Adventus, which means coming. And so in the, in the middle of the hustle and bustle of this season, right, if you're anything like me, the holidays seem like everything ramps up, like your, your schedule gets busier and there's all these family gatherings and shopping that you have to do and, you know, maybe you got your Black Friday deals or you're, you know, waiting tomorrow for the Cyber Monday and there's just like the list of things that you have to do. And in, in the midst of all this, our heart in an Advent series is that over the next five weeks, we would intentionally and mindfully wait the coming of a Savior, that we would remember that 2,000 years ago, Jesus came, that this book is the greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told in its entirety that climaxes with the moment Jesus came and and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus came to live this perfect life that you and I can't live. And then he died a death that you and I deserve to die so that we might be invited into his life. And yet it's easy to miss that, right? In the chaos of this season, And as you move from point A to point B and do your holiday shopping, or maybe you come to the hottest commodity in the East Bay, the Three Crosses Ice Rink, which, shameless plug, there is a booth out there in the ice rink where um, uh, Student Ministries, 2020 and Omega, they're working this booth and they're selling cotton candy and hot chocolate and whatnot, and all the proceeds from that and the, the members of our student ministries that are working there are going towards their camps in 2024. And so if you haven't come and check it out yet, come support our student ministries, uh, get your ice skating on, it's, it's a great time. But in the middle of all of that and in this season, we as a church, we want to pause five weeks out and look down the road and week in and week out as we light these candles, look forward to the coming of a Savior and remember that 2,000 years ago he came and why he came. And so, friends, there's an invitation in the book of Matthew. In this next slide, I just want us to, this, would this be the lens through which we open up Genesis chapter 38, that there's an invitation to turn, to repent, to follow Jesus and join his family. 
that the unimportant, the nobodies, the irreligious, all transformed by their trust in Jesus and are invited to follow him. And that is the invitation that stands for us today as we open up the Bible and we read God's story. Okay, so Genesis chapter 38. If you're there, I want to give us a little bit of context for this. So uh, if you've ever watched a show on like Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu, right? There's, there's typically the, the previously on whatever show it is, right? You're watching NCIS or Friends or The Office and it's like previously on and there's a little bit of a recap, right? So before we get into the chapter, or the, the chapter of uh, Genesis chapter 38, I want to give you a little bit of like a previously in the book of Genesis, okay? We have a, a guy named Israel who's kind of an important character in the Old Testament and Israel has 12 sons. And he has these 12 sons. There's one son who's kind of his favorite. He's got this coat of many colors whose name is Joseph, right? And there's this character, Joseph. He's the youngest brother. And the rest of the brothers, they don't really like him. He's a little bit braggadocious, a little bit arrogant. And he comes out to see his other brothers who are out working in the field. And and as Joseph is coming along in Genesis chapter 37, his brothers look at him. And anybody have an annoying sibling or anybody like parents in the room have kids who think each other are annoying, right? You're always like, stop fighting, right? Would you just get along for a day? This is kind of happening in the Bible, right? Tale as old as time. And we see the brothers, they're annoyed with their little brother coming. And I'm the little brother in my family, so I get it, right? But he's coming out and, and they all look at each other and they go, oh, here comes Joseph. Let's kill him. And I don't know about your family, right? There's plenty of drama in my family, but there's never been a moment where I, as a little brother, felt like my life was being threatened. And, and yet this is what we see in the story. They're just like, they're annoyed by him, so they decide to kill him. And then one of the older brothers, he talks some sense into him. He says, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into a pit. Which I don't know if that's better, but apparently it is. I guess it's better than dying. And, and Judah, who's kind of the antagonist of the story that we're going to get into in just a moment in Genesis chapter 38, Judah comes up with a brilliant idea with his brother in the pit to go, you know what? Since he's down there in the pit, here comes some Ishmaelites. Let's sell him into slavery. Which again, like, I don't know how dramatic your family is, but this is the story of the Bible, right? Like, this takes, uh, like, keeping up with the Kardashians or, like, the real housewives, whatever, and it makes them look tame. Because if you just open up the story of Genesis, uh, like I have over the last couple of weeks studying for this, it, there's, like, chapter after chapter after chapter where your mind is just kind of blown that this is the people that God is going to choose to use to make his name great. And so, like, if I can just take a quick aside and say, if you're sitting here this morning or listening online and you feel like I'm way too far gone or I've done too much or I don't belong in church or you don't understand my story, pastor, or whatever you might be feeling here, just know that the Bible is packed full of shady characters that make some crazy decisions and yet God still chooses to make his name great in and through their stories. And so friends, if you're, if you're sitting here this morning, please know like you belong here. When we say welcome home, we genuinely mean it because there's not a person in this room that if you wrote out your story that we couldn't find something equally or worse in the text that God has chosen to say, this is how I'm going to reveal myself to the world. And so just know, I want you to hear that as we dive into this story. This is kind of a crazy story. And yet the craziness in your story, God still wants to redeem and use. So Genesis chapter 38, we ready? Buckle up. Okay, let's dive in. Chapter 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. 
He married her and made love to her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son whose name was Ur. Which, just pause real quick as we start. Already, Judah, who's the fourth-born son of Israel, is kind of trying to make a name for himself. And so he leaves town, he goes off on his own, and his first kind of no-no of the story is that he marries a Canaanite woman. Three times explicitly in the text, we've already seen warnings to the descendants of Abraham, don't go and marry a Canaanite woman. And so what does he do? The very first thing he does to go make a name for himself, he goes into the land of Cana, finds a Canaanite woman, and, and marries her and has his firstborn named Ur. It says she conceived again in verse 4 and gave birth to a son named Onan. She gave birth still another son named Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Here's our gal. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Okay? Which, again, is it really easy in, when you're reading the Bible to just kind of fly by that? But there is a God here who's working in the midst of the craziness of this story, and this God is a God of justice, and he steps in, and even in the midst of the craziness, he has a purpose for what's going on. And so the Lord sees the wickedness of Ur. He puts Ur to death, and then this is where the story starts to take off a little bit. In verse 8, it says, Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife, and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep her from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Now, if you've zoned off at some point this morning and you just heard me say that out loud, uh-huh, here's the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, okay? So this story gets kind of bananas here, and if you're relatively new to church, you, you don't hear that or read that and think, mm, yes, of course, right? Like, <laughs> the leveret law that's at play here is something that was very common back then, but is kind of wild to understand now. But we have to know and understand the Bible in its context. Right? Here we're reading about a, a society that is clan-based. It's, it's agrarian, and wealth is measured in livestock, land, and the size of your family. So the, the most important thing for somebody to uh, establish on earth was lineage, was family. Everything was around the protection of your lineage. And so it was a very common practice if uh, your brother's wife died that you would step in and provide that woman with an heir, somebody to take care of her, somebody to take care of the family, somebody to pass on your wealth to. And so th this was a very caring practice to step in and say, I'm not going to abandon you as a widow. And so Onan steps in and he performs his duty as brother-in-law, and yet we see him use and abuse Tamar in this story. And again, God is present. God steps in, and a God of justice sees the wickedness of the brother here, and he also puts him to death. So here we see Tamar, two husbands dead, still childless, a young woman who has been now used and abused and marginalized, and we're going to see the rest of this story play out. Verse 11, it says, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Now, verses 17 through 23, I'm going to kind of summarize this story a little bit. And if you want to go back and read it for yourself later today, I would encourage you to do so. This story gets kind of wild, but here's what happens, okay? We see Tamar. 
She's been given to two, son, or two of, of Judah's sons. Both of those sons have died. One of those sons uses her and abuses her, and she's now sent back to her father's household to live as a young, childless widow. It, this is a very desperate, hopeless situation for a woman to be in. And so what happens is some time goes by, and we don't know how much time based on the text, but it says that it, there, it had to have been years because Shelah, the youngest brother, grows up, and then Judah loses his wife. She, goes, she dies, and when she dies, Judah's heading back to this town where, where uh, Tamar was living, and he's going to shear his sheep, and Tamar comes up with a plan. Now, in a Canaanite society, it would have been very normal if Tamar would have lost her husband or husbands without a child. It would have been very normal for a woman like that to turn to prostitution for the goal being to uh, procure an heir that could take care of her so she didn't have to live out her days in her father's household. And yet, we see Tamar... She's still living in her father's household. She's still dressed in her widow's uh, garb, and she has not turned to prostitution. But what she knows about her father-in-law, she knows enough about his character to know, if I go sit by the city gate and disguise myself as a prostitute, then my father-in-law is going to sleep with me. And this story is nuts, okay? Like, I'm not making this up. This is straight from the text. But Tamar goes, she disguises herself as a prostitute. She sits by the city gate, and sure enough, her father-in-law, Judah comes to shear his sheep, he's in town, and he walks by, he sees a prostitute, which he doesn't know is his, his daughter-in-law at this point, and he comes up to her and inquires with her, and he says, come and sleep with me. And they have this exchange where there's this transaction that goes on, where they go off, uh, and, and he, she says, now, what's the, what, what is the cost of sleeping with me? What is, what is this going to take? And, and, sh- and he offers her a young goat. And now, in this moment... I don't know, but apparently in this story, a young goat was like a fair price for what was whatever's about to go down. And she says, she looks at him and she says, okay, but I need a promise from you that you're going to deliver this young goat. And so he gives her, her his seal, his cord, and his staff. And these three things, they have no monetary value, but they would have been like Judah's signatures, right? His seal, his cord, his staff, everybody would have known that's Judah's seal, that's Judah's cord, that's Judah's staff. It was like his personal signature. And so she says, give me those three things, and then I'll know that when we come back, we'll make this exchange, I'll take the young goat, and I'll give you back these things. It's like this ransom that goes on. And so... Judah ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law, still doesn't know that it's his daughter-in-law. She's disguised. She has a veil on, and then she becomes pregnant. Now, uh, Judah comes to cash in on his young goat. He comes, he sends one of his people, one of his guys that works for him. He says, hey, go back, get my seal, my cord, and my staff, and here's the young goat to go and do it. So they come, and the guy working for him says, hey, where's the prostitute that sits at the gate that works at the gate? And the whole town says, there is no prostitute there. Because it was Tamar, dressed as a a disguise, not actually a prostitute. And so what happens in this story is the guy comes back to Judah and says, hey, couldn't find the prostitute. Now, Judah knows that's my seal, that's my cord, that's my staff. And so he says, you know what? Forget about it. Let her have it because he's trying not to be embarrassed. He's trying to save face by going, I'm not about to go and try to seek out and find these three things. He says, forget about it. Now, Some time passes. Three months goes by. Remember, Tamar got pregnant in this transaction, and because she got pregnant, she's starting to show at about three months, and this is where we pick up the story in verse 24. Y'all still with me? This is crazy, right? Like, if you've never heard this story before, you're sitting here going like, this is not what I was expecting when I decided to come to church this morning, and yet, here we are, friends, okay? Verse 24, 
About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. And Judah says, bring her out and have her burned to death. Wow. Okay? Talk about a double standard. Right? My, my guy's out here, like, in a patriarchal society, he can go out and sleep with this prostitute, and yet he finds out that his daughter-in-law, which, by the way, it is his responsibility entirely to provide her with an heir. And so he, one, should have been taking care of her. Two, he should have given Shayla his youngest daughter or his youngest son to her at this point. And so she's guilty of prostitution. She's now pregnant. He says, bring her out. She's going to be executed for this deed. And then it says this, uh, verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law and said, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Boom, roasted, okay? <laughs> now, in all honesty, in all sincerity, if this is me in this story, right? Like, it, it, there's kind of this poetic justice that's happening here. You kind of feel like you're watching a movie. And, and, if, and this is me, and I have his seal, and I have his cord, and I have his staff. I'm going to wait until the moment that you've brought me out in front of a crowd to execute me, and then I'm going to go, recognize this? Like, it's this beautiful moment. Like, it's this perfect setup for her to just humiliate her father-in-law, and yet she doesn't do that. There's this moment here in the beauty and the grace of Tamar is that she secretly sends a message to her father-in-law, and she says, I am pregnant by the man who owns these things. And she chooses, even in the midst of this brokenness, and even in the midst of how messed up and crazy this story is, to honor her father-in-law by not humiliating him in public. And he steps in, and he says this in the next verse, in verse 26, says, Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not sleep with her again. Hey, this story is nuts, and yet we're left, church, with the question of, like, what do we do with this, right? This is maybe the least Christmassy story you've ever heard in your life. And so what do we do with this? And two things I think that we can take away from this text. Number one is that there's this divine justice, right? That in the midst of this story, I don't want us to get caught in the weeds of, it, you know, is it okay that she dressed up as a prostitute? Is that not okay? Is, is he the good guy? Is she the, like, it's really easy, I think, to go on a couple of tangents here. But what I want us to see as an overarching picture is that God is a God of justice. And it, he ex expresses this multiple times in this story. That God is a God that cares about the discarded, the marginalized, the seemingly nobodies. And on either side of this story is going to be a, a story of a guy named Joseph. And in the story of Joseph and in the story of Tamar, there are so many moments in that story where we're on the outside and we kind of know how the story ends. And so it's easy for us to see God's hand at work. And yet, in the middle of their stories, I have to, I have to see and know and understand, put myself in their shoes to know when Tamar was a young, childless widow living in her father's household, do you think there were moments where she cried out and said, God, what's happening right now? Joseph, in the 17 years from the moment that he was sold into slavery to when he would reign in Egypt, do you think there was a moment in his life, in his story, where he went, God, where are you? What's going on? And I think one of the massive takeaways that we can kind of rest in church is that God is a God who's actively involved. He's on the move, and there's so many moments, especially in 2023, right, 
Where we can go, God, where are you? What are you doing? Are you still here? Are you still moving? Have you forgotten about us? And yet God is a God of divine justice, and he is a God who is on the move and a God who is active. And we see that in the story of Tamar. We see him preserving Tamar and his line, his son, eventually born out of the line of Tamar because he's a God who's involved. He's a God of justice. Number two, we see this tension of truth and depravity. The person who is called righteous is the one who dresses up as a prostitute in this story to sleep with her father-in-law. And we see how broken the text is, and we see how broken the story is, and there's this tension that exists between truth and depravity. And and for me, personally, I, I find comfort in this because I think so much of my life of choosing to follow Jesus is still marked by the brokenness that exists in my life. And I love that God not only says that like, life is going to be messy by demonstrating that through his people, but he invites us into a new life with him, and yet we're going to experience this tension of brokenness on the other side of that new life. And if you're anything like me, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've been following Jesus for a really long time, but you're still aware of the brokenness and the depravity in your own life. And I love the invitation here from a God that says, I see that brokenness. And just like in story after story after story in the Old Testament that God was on the move, that I believe that God is still actively working in your life and in my life. And he's inviting us to turn, to repent, to continue to follow him. And just like we saw in the book of Matthew, the lens that you're not just invited, but that you belong, I believe that God is working through the marginalized and the irreligious and the unimportant And those of us that maybe you feel in this season like God isn't present and you feel all alone, or maybe you're wrestling uh, with depression in this season, or or wherever you might be when you came this morning, would you know and would you hear that God is moving and that he's active? And and, and I love one of my favorite parts, um, just as we close here, of the New Testament is a moment where we get to uh, peek into the prayer life of Jesus. And in John chapter 17, we see a, a moment where Jesus is all alone and he's just, he's just praying. And he, it's the longest prayer recorded in, in, uh, in the Gospels. And it's Jesus just talking to his father, and which is kind of a, a crazy text to read. And if you've been around the Bible for a while, like you can see the red letters and think like, oh, these are Jesus' words. And yet, if we really pause and think about that, like the fact that we get to eavesdrop in on a prayer between Jesus and his father, is, it's kind of an incredible gift that we still have that. But in John chapter 17, the overarching prayer of Jesus is that he desires to be with us. Right? This term, Emmanuel, the Christmas song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, this word Emmanuel is God with us. Which begs the question, why would God desire to be with us? And it's not that he's lonely, right? God wasn't sitting up in a, you know, in some cosmic sphere going, I'm bored. Ah, humans, I'll create them and they'll at least entertain me. It's not that Jesus was bored. It's not that God uh, needed us. It's that he knew and understood that there's a, a part of us that's longing for something that only he can fill. That Jesus in in John chapter 17, his prayer over and over and over again to his father is that through being with us, that we would actually be satisfied in him. 
that there's a longing in every single one of us to belong. There's a longing in every single one of us to be known, to be accepted, to be loved. And Jesus' prayer on our behalf is that because of him and because of his presence that we would know and understand that we are loved and that we are accepted and that we belong through him in the power of his gospel. And as we close this morning, friends, we're gonna sing one last song. And I just wanna read to you a couple of the lyrics of this song. The lyrics are gonna be on slides on the screen, but the, the lyrics to this song, they say, when I doubt it, Lord, remind me that I'm wonderfully made. You're an artist and a potter. I'm the canvas and the clay. You make all things work together for my future and for my good. You make all things work together for your glory and for your name. And I know nothing has been wasted, no failure or mistake. You're an artist and a potter. I'm the canvas and the clay. And these words come straight out of scripture, friends. Jeremiah 18, Romans chapter 9, God is described as this artist, as this potter, and you and I as the, as the clay, as the canvas that he is at work in. And it's not that in this Christmas season that if we choose to follow Jesus or we lean into him or we find our identity or our, our purpose in him, it's not that all of our problems are going to go away. But how many of us need to be reminded that in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of that longing that maybe we're experiencing, that God wants to meet you there. I love that it says, right, when I doubt it, Lord, remind me. I'm wonderfully made that you're an artist. You're the potter. I'm just the clay. And there's so many moments in my life that we might pause and go, what are you up to, God? Where are you moving? And yet would we know and understand that God is present, that he is moving, that he is active, and he desires to invite you into his family and give you a great purpose? God, when I doubt it, would you remind me? Right? No failure or mistake is wasted, that God has a purpose, he's on the move. And we, church, are invited into that over the next five weeks to just lean into this coming of a Savior. Remember it. Live by it. Let it be the lens through which we see this Christmas season. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this morning. God, thanks for a, a crazy story in the Old Testament that just gives us such an insight and a look into your character that you are a God that moves, that is actively involved, a God of justice, and yet a God of patience and grace. Now that even your lineage, your genealogy is marked with some wild stories. And yet, God, it gives us a hope in the midst of our desperation, in the midst of our brokenness, where we remember, God, that no failure or mistake is wasted, that there's an invitation for every person in this room every person watching, listening, God, that you invite us in to turn, to repent, to follow you. God, we love you. Thanks for loving us first. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your story. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.